This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 304, entitled, Did the Opponents of 1 John Downplay Jesus' Humanity? Now, in our previous three episodes, we have surveyed the various approaches offered by biblical scholars to identify the opponents against whom 1 John was written. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at the suggestion that is widely popular, which interprets the opponents of 1 John as Gnostics. Two weeks ago, we explored the possibility that the opponents were Docetic Christians. And last week, we examined the possibility of the opponents articulating a separationist Christology. Thus far, None of these suggestions have reached a scholarly consensus as they each do not neatly explain the data present within 1 John and within history. This week's episode will look at the interpretation of the identity of the opponents of 1 John that argues that they devalued the significance of Jesus' humanity. So I'm going to begin by detailing the arguments in favor of those who regard the opponents as those who rejected Jesus' humanity or downplayed it in some manner. Then I'm going to detail the arguments offered against this sort of identification. And in the end, you, the listener, can decide for yourself which side has offered the better reading of the available data, the text of 1 John, and of history. So, were the opponents of 1 John promoting a Christology that downplayed the human Jesus? And was 1 John written to strengthen the faith of the community of Christians against the heresy of a non-human Jesus? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at arguments in favor of the theory of opponents who rejected the importance of Jesus' humanity. So what do I mean by rejecting the importance of Jesus' humanity? Let's begin with some definitions. So what do I mean by rejecting the importance of Jesus' humanity? This is a scholarly reconstruction wherein the opponents of 1 John are downplaying the centrality and the atoning significance of Jesus' death, his life, and his teachings. And this particular theory rests on the assumption that the opponents of 1 John actually valued a much higher Christology involving the literal preexistence of Jesus as a conscious being who at some point took on flesh, probably at Jesus' birth. And since the opponents understood Jesus as literally preexisting his birth in his own being, that particular pre-existent state was what was really important, not the death of the assumed humanity, at least according to this reconstruction. So that's one particular way 
in which there has been a scholarly reconstruction wherein the opponents are rejecting the importance of Jesus' humanity. They assume that the opponents believe in the literal preexistence of Jesus, and thereby First John is coming along and trying to correct this by saying, actually, the humanity of Jesus is important. Now, some scholars have expanded upon this particular theory of opponents, devaluing the human Jesus significance, by also suggesting that the opponents stressed the reception and possession of the Holy Spirit, believing that having the Spirit is actually more important than what Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry, including his death on the cross. And so this particular nuance would be consistent with a biblical Unitarian view of Jesus, wherein Jesus was a fully human person, to where the previous suggestion would not be consistent with the biblical Unitarian view. So there are a variety of scholars that articulate these two various ways of downplaying the significance of the humanity of Jesus, but I want to kind of focus on one particular person that kind of defines each of these interpretations. So the first person we're going to look at is Raymond Brown. And Raymond Brown's construction of this has been quite popular, but he's the most prominent scholar that has offered this reconstruction within scholarly literature. So where can you go to better understand what Raymond Brown thinks in regard to the Johannine community and the opponents of First John. Well, Raymond Brown has written a two-volume commentary in the Anchor Bible series on the Gospel of John, but he also wrote the corresponding commentary on First John within the same series, the Anchor Bible series. Additionally, Raymond Brown wrote a full-length monograph called The Community of the Beloved Disciple that further fleshed out this particular view. So he's quite prolific in his publication of his views of the Johannine community involving the Gospel John and 1 John. Now, Raymond Brown views 1 John as written after the Gospel of John. He thinks that the Gospel of John was written to explain how the Johannine community was excommunicated from the synagogue because that particular community held to a very high Christology, including the belief in the personal preexistence of Jesus. Now, some of those excommunicated persons eventually became the opponents in 1 John, specifically by arguing that the earthly human life of Jesus was relatively unimportant. They would say that his earthly ministry or the flesh that he assumed at the Incarnation only had a revelatory purpose. It was to reveal the glory. But they would say that his ministry did not have a salvific purpose. So what sort of passages inform Raymond Brown's reconstruction wherein the human Jesus has been devalued? So he's going to latch on to 1 John chapter 4, verses 2-3, through three, and as we've seen, this is a passage that 
all reconstructions of the identity of the opponents of 1 John have to reckon with. So this passage says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. That's chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. So Brown sees this passage as describing the opponents who negate the importance of Jesus' flesh. They downplay what Jesus did in the flesh, and so the author of 1 John is saying that you have to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh in order to be identified as someone who is from God. And if you don't confess this particular Jesus, you're not from God. So 1 John is seen as shoring up the validity of the flesh of Jesus against those opponents who are rejecting the importance of Jesus' flesh. Now Brown is also going to look at the key passage involving the opponents, which is chapter 2, verse 22, which says, Who is the liar but the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. It's a very important passage in reconstructing the identity of the opponents, so let's kind of keep that one in mind. We'll refer back to it a little bit later. But Raymond Brown sees in this passage the denial regarding Jesus as the Christ because it says it's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There's a stress and emphasis on Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the given human name to the Son of God. So they are denying Jesus. They're denying that human person. The earthly life of Jesus, that is his human life, was not seen by the opponents, according to Brown, as offering any sort of salvific example to be followed. In other words, the human Jesus was not a teacher whose teachings really had any sort of lasting impact on his followers. And the following passages are to be read as mere readings against the understanding of what the opponents of 1 John were actually teaching. So, like in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The assumption there is saying that if we have a relationship with God, but we're not actually walking in a way that has been presumably prescribed by Jesus, then we are lying. And the lying thing shows up again in verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So thereby stressing the importance of the correct life and walk, and the humility of acknowledging one's own sin. A little bit more can be seen in his reconstruction in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And in the context, it's argued that the him to whom someone claims to know is actually Jesus. I have come to know Jesus, but 
they don't keep his commandments, this person is a liar. And so if the opponents are saying that you really don't need to keep the commandments of Jesus because his earthly human ministry is not really relevant, then First John is going to come along and say, you actually do need to keep his commandments. And in chapter 2, verse 19, it indicates that the opponents have gone out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. That's chapter 2, verse 19. So Raymond Brown looks at these passages and he sees that, well, if we understand that the opponents are rejecting the importance of what Jesus accomplished in his ministry through his teachings, then these passages can be read as mere readings and saying that we actually do need to walk in the light. We do need to acknowledge our sin. We do need to keep his commandments. So that's part of his reconstruction. And again, Raymond Brown is a prolific scholar. He has unfortunately died, but he is the most prominent Catholic scholar and exegete of the 20th century. So he's someone whose views need to be reckoned with. Now, I'll want to look at another nuance of the reconstruction suggesting that the humanity of Jesus has been devalued and there are a variety of scholars that make this argument, but I want to focus on one particular person who kind of exemplifies this particular scholarship. So having looked at Raymond Brown, I'm now going to look at the scholarship of Urban von Wald. Now Urban von Wald has a three-volume commentary on the Gospel and the Epistles of John in the Erdman's Critical Commentary series. He also has a full monograph on the Johannine situation called the Johannine Commandments. So he has written quite a lot on this issue. Now Von Wald understands the final form of the Gospel of John as coming into being as a reaction against the opponents who seceded from the Johannine community as we see in 1 John particularly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the last passage that we read. So, according to Von Wald's reconstruction, the Gospel of John in its final form is actually written to clarify and make certain on the ambiguities that the opponents who left the Johannine community, as we see in 1 John, were exploiting. So it's a little bit different from Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown would say that the Gospel of John was written first and 1 John was written second. And Von Wald would say that the Gospel of John was partially complete. And then we have 1 John and probably 2 John. And then he would say that the final redaction of the Gospel of John is written in order to respond to some of the issues that we see that have come out of first John. So it's a much more nuanced and complex argument of the writing of these documents. Now, von Wald's reconstruction is made up almost entirely of mere readings. He has to have this particular theory and he points to the passages that if you just understand the 
perceptions and the motivations of the opponents, then you can read these passages correctly. And he focuses on a particular issue, which is really important for his reconstruction, where the opponents in 1 John regarded the reception of the Holy Spirit as the key moment that negated all that Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry. So Jesus and his teachings are really no longer needed, or at least they're not really important, because the believers now possess the Spirit. They've already got the Spirit, so why do they need Jesus anymore? That would be the motivation of the opponents against whom First John is writing. So Urban von Wald is going to read the passages that focus on the Son, in addition to the Father, as a mere reading emphasis on the Son's importance in light of the opponent saying that once you possess the Spirit, you no longer need the Son. So take, for example, these passages. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, which says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So Von Wald would say that the fact that it's having to say that, hey, the fellowship is with the Father and with the Son is because the opponents are saying you actually don't need the Son anymore. You've got the Spirit. You've got the Spirit of God, which is effectively the Spirit of the Father, and you don't need the Son anymore. So, of course, the author, First John, is going to stress the fact that you do still have fellowship with the Father's Son. We can see a bit more of this in chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Again, stressing the importance of the Son and the things that he taught. You still need to obey the Son, even if you have received the Spirit. A few verses later, in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And the him in whom someone is claiming to abide is Jesus. The one who says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. The stress here, again, is the importance of practically living and walking in light of the example of Jesus, because that's important when your opponents are saying, you really don't need Jesus anymore. You've got the Spirit, and that's all that you need. We have a little bit more of this in chapter 2, verse 23, which says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So why would someone be denying the Son? Well, Von Wald's construction suggests that the opponents are stressing the reception of the Spirit. We've got the Spirit. We don't need Jesus anymore. And so first Sean is going to say, you can't deny the Son. If you deny the Son, you don't even have the Father either. But if you confess the Son, you also have the Father. In chapter 3, verse 5, we have a little more of this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So again, stressing the importance of Jesus and his ministry, his human ministry, that he took away sins. And of course, in him there is no sin. So, of course, the ministry and the death of the human Jesus had vital and important salvific ramifications, and that can't be overlooked even if you possess a spirit. In one last passage in chapter 5, verse 12, it says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
again, stressing the importance of possessing the sun. You have to possess the sun in order to possess eternal life. You can't just say, well, I don't need the sun anymore because I have the Holy Spirit and I'm empowered as the opponents are supposedly saying. So Raymond Brown's reconstruction suggests that the opponents are arguing for the literal preexistence of Jesus, and they would view the incarnation as taking upon this preexistent Son of God a humanity that really wasn't that important. It's not being valued. It's not being stressed. And so the author First John is saying, actually, you do need that humanity, and that is important. Urban von Wald is going a bit further, and he's saying that the opponents are likely looking at their own reception of the Holy Spirit and saying, well, now that we have the Spirit, we really don't need the Son, we don't need His teachings, those things aren't important. And so, in each of their own ways, the humanity of Jesus is being devalued. So, those are the arguments in favor of viewing the opponents in terms of rejecting the significance of the humanity of Jesus. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, arguments against the theory of opponents who rejected the importance of Jesus' humanity. So, as I looked at Raymond Brown as kind of the exemplar scholar that is teaching his view, and Urban von Wald as the scholar that is teaching his view, I'm going to respond kind of specifically to their own arguments. And so, uh, those scholars or those other commentaries that hold similar views would kind of fall under this umbrella. So, we noted that Raymond Brown's Reconstruction presupposes the real Christology of the Gospel of John that would involve Jesus as a pre-existent divine being who took on flesh at the Incarnation, only to have that flesh neglected and overlooked by the opponents of First John. So, I think that the argument against this is that it's not altogether clear that that is the real Christology of the Gospel of John. So you can't sit there and say that the first epistle of John is writing against a particular Christology if those people never actually held that Christology. The preexistence of Jesus in the Gospel of John is actually the preexistence of the personified Word that was in the beginning with God. God's personified word was a known and recognized synonym for God's wisdom, which was also heavily personified in Jewish wisdom literature. So to say that the human Jesus was the incarnation of God's word or God's wisdom is not saying that a pre-existing conscious divine being became man. Rather, it was insisting that the fully human Jesus really embodied God's creative speech, and he embodied the wise interactions with creation. That's what it means to say that Jesus is the incarnation of wisdom in the incarnation of word, because word and wisdom were personifications in Jewish wisdom literature. They weren't conscious divine beings alongside the Father. So that, of course, I think really throws a wrench into Raymond Brown's Reconstruction. Now, Raymond Brown combines two different groups in 1 John, and he actually uncritically assumes that they are one and the same group. This has been a problem in nearly all of the reconstructions 
and I'm going to continue to really stress this particular point because I think it's a point that really needs to be taken seriously. So let me make it clear for our listeners. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we get the first description of the opponents, the first explicit description of the opponents. It says that the opponents, quote, went out from us, end quote, meaning that the opponents have seceded from the Johannine community. So these former members of the community, a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 22, deny that Jesus is the Christ. And this seems to describe a refusal to accept Jesus as the Christ. They aren't accepting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. This is not referring to Christians who really do believe in Jesus, but they don't value his human ministry, as Raymond Brown is trying to reconstruct. These persons reject the messianic status of Jesus altogether. They went out from us, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that doesn't neatly fit into what Raymond Brown is trying to say. Now, the other passage, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2-3, through 3, describes persons who are false prophets that have gone out into the world. This is not the same group as the former members of the community that we just read in chapter 2, verse 19, who went out from us. These traveling false prophets refuse to accept that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And I think that this means that they are refusing to accept that Jesus came at all. The Jewish Messiah has not yet come, according to these traveling false prophets. So I don't think that this is an attack on Jesus' humanity. It's not stressing the in the flesh part, namely the humanity of Jesus. Rather, it's an attack on whether Jesus, as the Christ, has actually come at all. They're saying he did not come at all in the flesh. Like he didn't come, period. But that group of persons in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2-3, through 3, they are traveling false prophets who have gone out into the world. This is not the same group of persons as we see earlier in chapter 2, verse 19, who have seceded from the community, those who have gone out from us. You would not describe people who have left your church as false prophets who have gone out into the world. That's not the same group of persons. But in these scholarly reconstructions, too many people have uncritically assumed that these two groups are describing the same group, and they've kind of collapsed them all into one. And I don't think that that works. You have to describe and deal with each of those groups individually. Now, Raymond Brown also requires that you mere read many of the passages in 1 John, and quite frankly, I just don't think that they're very persuasive. They require that you begin with an interpretation of what those opponents are saying, and that you read that into the text, and thereby you force the text into a mere reading the opposite of what the opponents taught. And I think this is really strained, and it's really not the textbook definition of exegesis, which is interpreting from out of the text itself. It requires you to begin uh, with a particular lens through which you read the text and you assume that the text is arguing against what you're reading into it. So that's the rebuttal against 
Raymond Brown's reconstruction. I just don't particularly find it very persuasive. Now, Urban von Wald's reconstruction, of course, sees the issue not so much dealing with the downplaying of Jesus' humanity, but rather it is a rejection of the humanity of Jesus' significance in light of the spirit coming upon the believer at conversion. And, of course, this is the same spirit that was sent after Jesus' ministry had concluded. And you can kind of understand where this is coming from, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, and then I'm going to come to you by sending the Comforter, by sending the Spirit. So one of the things that I would look for is that if First John is writing against the theory involving the overemphasis on reception of the Spirit in a way that ignores or devalues the humanity of Jesus, I would be looking for passages that talk about the Spirit. But unfortunately, the mention of the Holy Spirit, particularly as the thing that believers possess, rightly, is actually pretty rare in 1 John. It's only showing up twice in passages that could be used to argue von Wald's point. But when you read those passages, they really can be read in other ways that actually don't require you to begin with this presupposition of what the opponents believe and a forced mere reading of those passages. I'll give you an example. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, it says, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit that he has given us. That's chapter 3, verse 24. So we know that he abides in us because of the Spirit that he has given us. Now on the surface, this doesn't actually appear to be a polemically charged passage concerning those who actually argue for the importance of the Holy Spirit. This particular passage is actually stressing the knowledge of God that is abiding in us. It's not stressing the reception of the Holy Spirit as something that's more important than Jesus' ministry of teaching and dying on the cross. So we don't actually have a lot of passages that talk about the Holy Spirit in 1 John, and the rare passages that do don't seem to be aware that the opponents are overemphasizing the reception of the Spirit to the neglect of what Jesus accomplished in his human ministry. They don't seem to fit into that reconstruction quite neatly. Now, the key passage describing the opponents in 1 John, namely those who seceded from the Johannine community, is, as we've seen, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And this passage describes them as denying that Jesus is the Christ. And it says that these deniers are called Antichrist. But in Urban von Wald's reconstruction, the opponents do in fact believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they just value the possession of the Holy Spirit as more important than Jesus' ministry. So von Wald's reconstruction just really doesn't offer a clear reading of what I think is the most essential text in this reconstruction, which is the initial text that describes the identity and the belief of the opponents. And it 
seems to indicate that the issue in First John was a rejection of Jesus even being the Christ at all. But that's not what the opponents believed, according to Von Wald's reconstruction. So it just doesn't really fit in there quite well. Now, like Raymond Brown's reconstruction, Urban Von Wald requires that the interpreter must mere read a lot of passages in First John in order to make his theory possible. In other words, you must begin with the conclusion, then you have to read it into the text and make those texts offer truthful rebuttals of the things that the opponents taught. And the problem with this, if you haven't already noticed it, is that this is what we call circular reasoning. Namely, we know the opponents didn't teach X because we read that into the text and we make the text say that the opponents didn't actually believe it. And I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm not convinced. I'm just, I don't think that these two scholars really are in tune with what First John is actually saying about the opponents. I don't think that the humanity of Jesus is being deliberately downplayed either by some sort of reconstructed Christology of a consciously pre-existent son of God that became man or by an overemphasis on the reception of the Holy Spirit after the completion of Jesus' human ministry on earth. I just don't think that these scholars really have offered a compelling reconstruction. I'm not convinced. Maybe you are. That's okay. That's fine. So, could the opponents of First John be former Jewish Christians who were no longer convinced of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, resulting in these opponents returning to the synagogue to participate in Judaism? In other words, is First John written to counter the claim that Jesus isn't the Jewish Messiah by stressing the fact that he really is the Christ? Please look forward to our next episode, in which we will explore the pros and cons of this particular theory, namely the theory of the opponents in First John who were Jewish Christians who left the church to return to the synagogue and participate in Judaism because they were no longer convinced that Jesus actually was the Jewish Messiah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, please check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.